Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. My name's Emma Topin and I'm a Senior Associate in Barry Nielsen's National Health Law Team. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Mark Blaskovich, who is a fellow in the University of Queensland's Institute for Molecular Bioscience. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today, Mark. Thanks for having me here. With World Antibiotic Awareness Week in mind, which takes place from 12 to 18 November, today we're discussing superbugs, the rising superbug crisis and what, if anything, we can be doing to fix it. And I'm thrilled to have Dr. Blaskovich here today, as he is also part of UQ's Centre for Superbug Solutions. So you're well-placed to provide some insight on the subject. Indeed. For about the last 10 years, I've been focused on trying to develop new antibiotics at UQ. Before we jump into today's discussion, a bit of background. In April this year, the UN Interagency Coordinating Group on Antimicrobial Resistance warned that if no action is taken, drug-resistant diseases could cause 10 million deaths each year by 2050 and damage the economy as catastrophic as during the 2008 and 2009 global financial crisis. By 2030, antimicrobial resistance could force up to 24 million people into extreme poverty. Currently, at least 700,000 people die each year due to drug-resistant diseases, including 230,000 people who will die from multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis. According to the report, more and more common diseases, including respiratory, urinary tract, and sexually transmitted infections are untreatable. Life-saving medical procedures are becoming much riskier, and our food systems are increasingly precarious. Each November, World Antibiotic Awareness Week aims to increase global awareness of antibiotic resistance and to encourage best practices among the general public, health workers and policymakers to avoid the further emergence and spread of antibiotic resistance. So Mark, let's get into today's discussion. How does antimicrobial resistance occur? So antimicrobial resistance, um, it's also called antibiotic resistant and also called drug resistant infections, occurs when bacteria are no longer able to be effectively killed by the antibiotics that we're currently using to, to treat them. Um, there are a number of ways that it happens. Um, so the, the bacteria can prevent the antibiotics from getting inside them to act where they're meant to act. Um, they can actually change the structure of the antibiotics so they're no longer effective. Or the actual targets that the antibiotics are meant to be acting on within the bacteria um, can mutate and change as well. So all three of those scenarios, the antibiotics no longer effective. And just to make one thing very clear, when we're talking about antimicrobial resistance, it's the bacteria that are becoming resistant to the antibiotic. It's not the person that's becoming uh, resistant to the antibiotic because that is a, a common misconception. Absolutely. And that's important to bear in mind. And we're hearing about superbugs these days. What makes a superbug? Yeah, so, so superbugs kind of a, a loose definition of bacteria that have become resistant to multiple different antibiotics. So antibiotic resistance is nothing new. Right from the discovery of penicillin, they identified that bacteria were resistant to penicillin as the first 
antibiotic um, back in the 1940s. And as we've developed new antibiotics, you know, every antibiotic has been introduced into the clinic, resistance has been detected to that antibiotic either before it's in the clinic or generally within a few years. So, so it's nothing new. The difference now is that we're no longer producing new antibiotics fast enough to stay ahead of the development of resistance and the bacteria have become resistant to all the different new classes of antibiotics that have been developed over the last 60 years. Okay. Um, why should we be worried? We should be worried because we're no longer developing new antibiotics fast enough. Um, so there are a number of re reasons behind that, and they're they're mainly economic. But basically, for the last ever since the discovery of penicillin, we've been in this arms race with the bacteria, where the bacteria evolve to to develop resistance against a new antibiotic that's been introduced, and we come up with a new and improved antibiotic that is able to treat those resistant bacteria. We've fallen behind now. We're no longer producing new antibiotics at a fast enough rate to overcome the resistant bacteria. Well, I know certainly for the past couple of generations and certainly in my lifetime, I've always known that if I have an infection, I can go to the doctor and get a prescription and in a couple of days it'll be gone. It's amazing to remember that penicillin was only discovered around 90 years ago and that this constant development is going on. Um, what are some of the causes of antibiotic resistance? So the, the main cause of antibiotic resistance is the inappropriate use of antibiotics. So antibiotics are, are widely used when they're not needed or when they shouldn't be used. And so if you expose bacteria to a, a low sublethal concentration of an antibiotic, um, the bacteria, they, they evolve very quickly, right? So they're, they reproduce generally a, a slightly doubling time of about 20 minutes, depending on the type of bacteria. And so you have, you know, hundreds of different generations that can mutate and develop resistance when they're exposed to a sublethal concentration of bacteria. So, you know, what doesn't kill them makes them stronger, essentially. Um, and, and so over time, they, they mutate and you know, for a new antibiotic, they, they develop mechanisms of resistance to stop that antibiotic from killing them. Um, they're also incredibly promiscuous at exchanging DNA and, and between different bacteria. So one bacteria may develop resistance and then it readily transfers that re those resistance genes onto other bacteria as well. Okay. They definitely deserve the name superbug. They anyway. do. <laughs> um, GPs are clearly not prescribing antibiotics for viruses due to a lack of understanding of their clinical uses. What do you think are some of the reasons for the seasonal increase in prescription of antibiotics? Yeah, so so there's a couple of reasons. So, so antibiotic misuse... Um, occurs in, in two environments. So one is in human use. And as you say, particularly in flu season, it's very difficult if you come into a doctor's office you know, with, with chest infection and coughing and sneezing, it's very difficult to accurately determine whether you actually have a viral infection or whether you have a bacterial infection. And so just to be safe, um, the doctor will sometimes prescribe you an antibiotic, even if they're not sure whether you have a viral or bacterial infection. And, and that's, you know, one of the, the key inventions that would reduce the unnecessary use of antibiotics would be the development of a rapid diagnostic point of care in the doctor's office that could tell you within five or 10 minutes, yes, you have a bacterial infection or no, it's viral. And then, you know, the doctor would be able to definitively say, well, you don't need an antibiotic. I won't prescribe you one. And the patient then wouldn't feel like they want to go away with, you know, needing to have an antibiotic prescription um, because prescribing antibiotics when you just have a viral, a cold or a flu, um, it has absolutely no efficacy on, on treating that virus. And so it's... 
from a doctor's perspective, you know, they're trying to cover their bases. You might have a bacterial infection and if they don't prescribe an antibiotic and it got worse, then there's that, you know, potential liability that, that they haven't treated you appropriately. And so this is where having a definitive test would take away that, that concern from a doctor's perspective. Yeah, that would be brilliant. I know speaking to the mums around here, a lot of them won't leave the doctor's surgery without a prescription for an antibiotic in case their kids' and, and it, infection it, progresses, you know. Exactly. And and it's both ways. So, you know, a lot of patients demand to have something leaving the doctor. And so that puts additional pressure on the doctor. And then, you know, from a doctor's perspective, you know, some of them are more free of prescribing than others. And so they've, uh, you know, particularly in the UK, they've introduced um, monitoring of the doctor's prescriptions and that has reduced, you know, they've identified doctors that have a much higher percentage of prescriptions of antibiotics. And by flagging those doctors and sending them a letter that, you know, we noticed that you're prescribing a, a lot of extra antibiotics, it has successfully reduced that inappropriate level of prescription. Wow, that's yeah, that's really interesting to know. Um, in doing some reading in preparation for today's um, program, I was surprised to learn about how um, antibiotics are used in raising livestock. Um, what are the, some of the reasons that antibiotics are given to animals? Yeah, so of, of all the antibiotics used around the world, about 70% of those antibiotics are being used in animals and not humans. And so most of that use or a large proportion of that use is inappropriate. So it's not treating the animals for actual infections they have, it's using it as a growth promoter to help the animals grow fatter, better, quicker. And it's not exactly known the mechanism of why that happens. It's just something that was discovered. It was actually, if you discovery of penicillin, soon after that, there's um, ads in, in Time magazine from some of the pharmaceutical companies saying, hey, look, this antibiotic actually works at making your livestock grow much more quickly. Um, and so it's, it's not necessarily just reducing the infections in the animals. It, there are other mechanisms by which treating um, livestock with antibiotics helps them grow faster. And so a lot of the unnecessary antibiotic use is this using it in feedstocks um, in, in animals in countries around the world. So Australia is actually one of the best countries in the world for not using antibiotics in animals. We're one of the worst at using it in people. So about one in two people get an antibiotic prescription every year. Um, but in terms of, of the use in animals, we've got one of the lowest uses around the world. Well, that's good to know. Um, and how does the overuse of antibiotics in animals become an issue for humans? So it's just, it, you have this pool of bacteria um, in animals. And so again, you're exposing them to a constant sublethal concentration of antibiotics. So those bacteria start to develop resistance. And again, those, either the bacteria themselves through the food chain can be passed on to humans or more likely their, their genetic resistance gets transferred on to bacteria, which are potentially going to infect humans at some point as well. And so you get the transfer of both bacteria and the resistance genes from the livestock into the human population. Wow. Is there an example you can talk about that's happened that you know about with um, bacteria? Yeah, so um, off the top of my head, I can't think of a direct yeah, example, sure. but th there have been um, an increasing number of scientific studies now looking at that correlation of resistance that's developed within the farm industry and then the transfer to the human population. And certainly now with the, the whole genome sequencing, you're able to track specific types of bacterial populations 
within the livestock population and then seeing the similar types of, um, you know, those specific genetic patterns showing up in the human population as well. Last month, the Australian Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee recommended a ban on repeat prescriptions for antibiotics when a repeat is not necessary pursuant to the therapeutic guidelines. The committee anticipates that this will assist in the reduction of antimicrobial resistance. Is the committee recommendation a case of too little, too late? So, so it's certainly not too late. It's, it's certainly something that should have been done a long time ago. And this actually came out at National AMR um, form, I think it was two years ago that the suggestion was made that this is something we could really quickly do to help reduce that inappropriate use of antibiotics in humans. And yet, even such a simple change has taken you know two years to get to a stage where it might actually happen. So there's that that big lag time between thinking of policies that could be effective and actually implementing them. And and that is a concern because you know every year you're using excessive antibiotics, it, it just raises the increase of antimicrobial resistance. And, and this dual prescription is, you know, it's not clear why it's been allowed over the years, because if you have a course of antibiotics and it treats your infections, you shouldn't be able to go back and, and just renew the prescription to have more antibiotics in stock in case you feel sick sometime in the future. It should only, you know, you should only be taking the antibiotics um, when you actually have an infection and need to be using them. Absolutely. And I remember from my childhood, my mum would often, you know, one of us would finish a course of antibiotics and then she keeps the other ones just in case. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you and, know, and, and we'd and, just take it without going to the doctor. To... And, and so one of the, you know, one of the reasons behind that type of thinking is that there's this perception that there is no harm if you take an antibiotic and you don't have an infection. And, and that's not true. You know, you think of a, an anti-cancer drug, you don't go off taking an anti-cancer drug if you don't have a diagnosis of cancer because you know that those have really bad side effects and, you know, it's not good to take an anti-cancer drug just to off chance that you might have cancer. Um, but people do that with antibiotics all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's that perception that they're, they're, they do not cause damage, but it's not true. There are direct physical damage that they can cause. So, you know, fluoroquinolones have a lot of, uh, they can cause tendon and muscle damage. Um, and, and then there's the, 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 the longer term implications, both of increasing antimicrobial resistance, um, but there are also been studies now that showing, for example, if you take antibiotics whilst you're pregnant, it can affect the, the infection rate of your child five years down the road. And so there are these long-term implications which people are only starting to understand now. And, and the other big effect of antibiotics is on your microbiome, so the population of bacteria that naturally inhabit your body. So when you take an antibiotic, ideally you're talking, targeting the, the, the bad bacteria that are, are causing the infection or the infection that's, that you're wanting to treat. But at the same time, you're also knocking out all the good bacteria, particularly those that exist within your gut um, that, that help in digestion. And there, there's a lot of long-term implications of what happens when you alter that, that natural microbiome now. And a lot of studies are associating your natural bacterial population with a whole bunch of other diseases. And so they're finding that the, the types of bacteria in your gut affect um, diseases that you know might, you would not normally think of being associated with gut bacteria. So things in your brain, um, you know, your mood, depression, anxiety, things like that can can all potentially be linked back to the type of bacteria that you carry around in your body. Gosh, that's so interesting. I wonder, is there could there be a relation between antibiotic use and celiac disease or something like that, or is that? I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know specifically. There've been studies at looking at that, mm -hmm. but potentially, yeah, it could be. Mm. Um, what are some other measures we can implement to manage um, antimicrobial resistance? One way is, is preventing infection in the first place. Um, so, you know, washing your hands, just that, that standard 
healthcare to prevent bacterial transmission between people. Um, that's particularly important. So a lot of infections are acquired within hospitals. Um, and so if you're within a hospital um, and you're, you're visiting someone, just make sure you're washing your hands before and after you see them. And if, if you're a patient in a hospital, make sure that doctors and nurses are washing their hands before they, they treat you. Because if they've just been to another patient and that patient has, you know, either has an infection or is carrying a resistant bacteria on them, they, they you know, treat them. And if they don't wash their hands before they come and treat you, potentially they'll pass on that bacteria onto you as well. Mm. So uh, to, again, to other ways of managing antimicrobial resistance. So, you know, reducing the unnecessary use of antibiotics. So I mentioned developing a new diagnostic um, would greatly potentially a huge impact on reducing inappropriate antibiotic prescription and then reducing the use in livestock. And, and you know, there are uh, around the world, there is a big effort to reduce the use of antibiotics in meat. And you know, ironically, it, it, most of the uh, particular countries like the states, most of that pressure hasn't come from the government regulatory agencies. It's come from public pressure on fast food companies. And so, you know, McDonald's using um, antibiotic-free beef and antibiotic-free chicken, you know, that that type of change in the, the large-scale users of meat products is having an effect going back up the food chain where regulation mm. hasn't been successful. Wow, that's so interesting. And it's just really good to keep in mind that that's how change happens. I know you have several programs at UQ dealing with antimicrobial resistance. Um, one of them is the Community for Antimicrobial Drug Discovery. Could you tell us how that works? Yeah, so so COAD, our, our Community for Open Antimicrobial Drug Discoveries, our, our flagship program that we've developed um, over the last six or seven years now, um, largely driven by substantial funding from, there's an international funding agency called the Wellcome Trust um, and strategic funding from the University of Queensland. So COAD is, is trying to... Um, encourage a, a crowdsourcing community approach towards discovering new antibiotics. So when antibiotics were first discovered back in the 40s and 50s, it was a collaborative approach where people from industry and academia worked together um, to, to discover these new classes of antibiotics because people were dying from infections and you had to come up with some way of, of preventing all these deaths. And so there weren't MTAs and CDAs, people just got together and worked together to identify and develop these new types of antibiotics. And so we're trying to return to that collaborative era um, by fostering antibiotic discovery within academic chemists around the world. So the premise behind COAD is that the big pharma companies have tested all their large compounds of millions of, of chemical compounds and found very few that are effective for antibiotics. And so that you know, chemical resource has been exhausted as a source of new antibiotics. But over the last you know, 50 years, synthetic chemists around the world in, in universities and, and other academic institutions have literally made millions of different types of chemical compounds with all sorts of weird and wonderful structures. And antibiotics don't look like a lot of other typical drugs. They break a lot of the rules that pharma companies now, when pharma companies are, are making new compounds, they often follow a set of rules that are designed to predict that these compounds are drug-like. So they, they're, in particular, they can be taken as a pill. And if you look at approved antibiotics, the majority of them break those rules. And so if you're now only testing compounds that fit this set of rules, you're missing all the compounds that might be antibiotics. 
So academic chemists generally aren't following those rules and they make weird and wonderful structures. And so our idea was, well, if we could tap into that pool of compounds that these academic chemists are making, maybe we could find new antibiotics. And the reason that these compounds haven't been tested previously is that one, so a lot of synthetic chemists are just focused on making compounds. They've got no interest in their biological activity because they're, they're trying to develop a new synthetic methodology or they're just interested in the shape or structure and they haven't thought about the possible testing downstream for antimicrobial activity. Um, and the other thing is it's really hard to find people that will do that testing for you. So if you're an academic institution and you want to find out if your compounds are potential antibiotics, trying to find someone that will do that testing for you is, is very difficult because there are not many people that do it. And it can be very expensive because if you go to a private company, they charge an awful lot of money and academics are generally very poor and don't have money, particularly if it's not their main area of research. So our idea was with this funding from the Wellcome Trust, we would set up a screening facility where we test for free compounds that people send into us. And so we only need a very small amount of compound from the collaborator, so a milligram of compound. Um, and then we do a, a what we call a primary screen at a single concentration against five different types of bacteria. Um, so five of the, the key pathogens identified by the World Health Organization of concern. Um, and then we also test against two fungi uh, because fungal infections are kind of the, the next scary frontier following on for, they're, they're even less recognized in bacterial infections, um, but resistance is increasing dramatically in fungal infections as well. And the pool of available antibiotics for fungal infections is even less than available for bacterial infections. So that's kind of going to be the, the next scary thing five or 10 years down the road. Um, so with COAT, we, we do this free testing at a single concentration. Um, if the compound shows activity, we do follow-up testing and, and do what's, uh, what's called a minimum inhibitory concentration. So we do test at different concentrations and find out what concentration actually kills the bacteria. Um, we test against an expanded panel of bacteria, including bacteria that are resistant to see if the compound works against a variety of type of bacteria. Um, we test against toxicity against human cells, because if it's going to kill a human cell at the same concentration as it kills the bacteria, it's not going to be very useful. Um, and then we start looking at some initial drug-like properties. So does it get chewed up really quickly if you expose it to the enzymes that are found in the human body? Because again, if it, if it gets um, metabolized really quickly or chewed up really quickly, um, it's not going to last long enough to be an effective antibiotic. Then all that data gets sent back to the collaborator. So it's free. The collaborator uh, retains all the rights to the compound. And so th this is interesting from an intellectual property perspective is that they retain all their intellectual property and, and they can publish, they can patent, or they can develop it for themselves. And the only, th only thing that we require, and, and this is one of the requirements of Welcome Trust funding, is that after a two-year moratorium, um, the structure of the compound and the associated antimicrobial data, whether it's positive or negative, gets published in an open access database. And this means that now this resource of, of hundreds of thousands of compounds that have been tested under standardized conditions is available to the general scientific community. And so they can examine these and look at if compounds they're making have already been tested or if structures they're making haven't been tested and, and fit into a pattern where they might have activity. But they can also use it to try building up computational models which might be able to predict whether 
a structure, a certain structure has antimicrobial activity or not. And so, you know, we think this is one of the most valuable outputs of COAD is this very large database. So, so COAD has been incredibly successful over the last five years. Um, we've tested over 300,000 compounds from 300 different academic groups in 45 countries around the world. So, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, it, it has clearly shown there is a need for a service that provides free testing and chemists are willing to take that up if it's offered to them. And so it's the, the largest public-private um, screening of compounds that's ever been, been done in the world. Um, so it's been, you know, remarkably successful from that point. We've identified somewhere around 1,500 active compounds that, that have wow. antimicrobial activity. And so now comes the stage of, you know, those need to be followed up. And, and, and the collaborators, you know, a lot of them don't have antimicrobial expertise. And so we need to find ways of getting these compounds out so other people can help develop them going forward. That's fantastic. And I'm particularly interested in your um, discoveries about um, cannabis and the research you've been doing there. Now, how did you find out that cannabis might have antimicrobial properties? Yeah, so it's actually one component um, found in the cannabis plant called cannabidiol. And that's actually the the non-psychoactive component, make that very clear. (laughs) Um, So this is a separate research program, um, an industry collaboration that rose outside of of COAD. Um, There's an Australian company called Botanics, which has been looking at topical treatment of cannabidiol um, for indications such as acne or atopic dermatitis. And they're interested in, in treating these diseases. So they're, they're basically a formulation company that's been able to develop an effective topical formulation of cannabidiol. And their interest in those diseases was based pretty much entirely on the literature uh, precedent that cannabidiol has anti-inflammatory activity because both of those diseases are associated with um, inflammation of the skin. But at the same time, those diseases are also associated with bacterial infections. And so uh, botanics came to us because they knew that we did a lot of antimicrobial characterization um, and had a pre-existing relationship with, a, with one of the members in, in the company. Um, and we got an Australian Government Innovation Connections grant to help foster this collaborative research looking into the antimicrobial activity. Um, so there had been some previous literature reports, you know, one from the 1970s and one from the 1980s, that, that did report some very limited data that cannabidiol did have antimicrobial activity. Um, and so we've followed that up and done a lot more extensive testing. And certainly in test tubes, it's remarkably effective as a gram-positive antibiotic. So there there are two major types of bacteria called gram-positive or gram-negative. Gram-positive bacteria include things like Staphylococcus aureus or golden staph is the antibiotic-resistant variety, Um, and also Streptococcus pneumonia, which so between the two of those, those cause the the largest number of infections in, in humans. Um, and certainly in test tubes, cannabidiol is incredibly effective at treating those with a similar type of um, inhibitory or, or killing activity um, at a similar concentration of well-known antibiotics such as vancomycin or daptomycin. Um, so we've, we've followed up and tested a whole variety of over 100 different types of bacteria and it, of, of gram-positive bacteria, and, and cannabidiol is able to kill all of those, um, including ones that have become highly resistant to these other gram-positive antibiotics. So vancomycin-resistant bacteria, um, penicillin-resistant bacteria, and daptomycin-resistant bacteria, the, the cannabidiol is still able to kill them. And it's also, uh, in terms of 
inducing resistance. So we do what's called a resistance induction experiment where we expose the bacteria for 20 days continuously to a sublethal concentration of the antibiotic. And so generally against uh, you know, the, the common antibiotics, you see this gradual increase in, in the inhibitory concentration required to kill the bacteria over those 20 days up to a level where the antibiotic, certainly when it's used clinically, um, you can't tr use a therapeutic concentration high enough to kill the bacteria anymore. Under those same conditions, cannabidiol shows remarkably low um, inclination to develop resistance. And so not only is it able to treat resistant bacteria, but it appears that resistance develops very, very slowly against cannabidiol. So as a you know, potential therapy, that's, that's a really good place to be. Um, and so what we need to do now is figure out, you know, we, we don't know how it's working. Um, we, we're, we're starting to do some mode of action studies. And we also want to see if we can improve the activity. So we have tried doing some in vivo testing, so testing to see if it can treat in, you know, real infections in, in animals. So we use mice for this in vivo testing. And for systemic infections, so infections that are within the mouth, um, so far we've, we've seen, unfortunately, seen no signs that, that it works. And we think it's because it's, um, it gets bound very strongly to proteins. And so we think within the body, it gets bound to those proteins and so isn't available to, to kill the body. Um, but for topical treatments, so for skin infections um, on the surface, it does seem to work. Um, we've, we've done a couple of different mouse infection studies on the skin, and, and you do see signs of efficacy from, from cannabidiol in those situations. And so, um, you know, there's, it's early stages. There's a lot of work that we need to do still. Um, but Botanics is certainly very keen to push this forward into um, potential clinical trials in the near future. Um, and we're also looking at trying to develop analogs to see if we can improve the activity and, and also make you know, a new class of antibiotics that's effective against bacteria within the body as well. Fantastic. I've got a question I want to pose to you, but um, I feel like after this promising news, it probably doesn't apply um, anymore. Um, how will medical practice and life on earth in general change if we don't um, have antibiotics? If we don't discover new antibiotics and, you know, despite cannabidiol potentially showing promise, it's still very early stages, um, medical treatment as we know it will no longer work. You know, we will return back to the, the pre-1940s when approximately 40% of people died from infections. Um, and so people, you know, anti-cancer therapy will no longer work because when you take anti-cancer therapy you become immunocompromised and you become susceptible to infections. And so you commonly will take antibiotics during an anti-cancer treatment. And if the antibiotics no longer work, you're going to die from an infection, even if your cancer is successfully being treated. Um, similarly, um, you know, hip and joint replacements will no longer be possible because you generally take prophylactic antibiotics to prevent infection um, during a hip or joint replacement. And again, if the antibiotics don't work, that type of surgery, you know, the common surgeries will no longer be effective. So medical practice will, will change dramatically. Um, you know, and, and the predictions are that if we don't start working now at developing new antibiotics by 2050, there'll be more people dying from infections than there are from cancer. Gosh, that's a sobering thought. And, 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 and part of the problem is it takes so long. You know, the, the, the timeline to develop a new antibiotic even if today we discovered in through the COAT program something that looked incredibly promising, you know, wonderful new class of antibiotics hadn't been discovered before, very effective in the test tube at, at killing the bacteria. The soonest that could be approved for human use is 10 to 15 years from now. 
And wow. so, you know, within those 10 to 15 years, how many other antibiotics will become ineffective and how many people will be dying from untreatable infections? Yeah. And I mean, I, I can imagine it's possible too that that antibiotic might become ineffective in the time. Exactly. You know. it, yeah. Yeah. So the, you see reports about, you know, potentially new compounds that, that don't induce resistance. And, you know, you I'll say this even with cannabidiol. No antibiotic ever introduced has been resistance-free. And so that's not going to change. Bacteria are just you know, basically too, they're, they, they're not really intelligent, but they're, as a class, they're, they're too smart. They're able to overcome because they reproduce so quickly and mutate so quickly. They're able to overcome, you know, every type of antibiotic that's ever been thrown at them. And even these, um, you know, a- antimicrobial hand washes that, so there used to be a component or there still is in some, some antimicro- uh, hand washes called triclosan. And it was always thought that, that this did not foster or induce resistance. And that's why it was so widely used in, in hand washes. And it's now been banned in the States. Um, I believe it's still available um, for use in Australia. And studies are showing that not only does it induce resistance against the triclosan itself, but it also causes the bacteria to become resistant to other antibiotics because in becoming resistant to triclosan, they, they you know, make their, their outer barriers more impenetrable. And so other antibiotics don't come in, get in either. And so you're inducing resistance not only against the, the, the disinfectant that you're using, you're also in, inducing resistance against general antibiotics in general. Goodness. And so they're still selling it here? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's obvious that the superbug crisis is extremely serious, but we're not without hope. Unfortunately, the issue of antibiotics is now getting the attention it deserves. With the global community coming up with new and novel ways of overcoming antimicrobial resistance, such as the COAD project, we should be able to benefit from the use of antibiotics for a long time to come. Mark, thank you so much for coming to join us today at The Checkup. You're very welcome. If you'd like to learn more about the COAD project or donate, please go to www co-ad.org. There's a donate page there too. Yeah, so we you know, are actively seeking donations to help the COAD initiative going forward. Um, unfortunately, our Welcome Trust funding is coming to an end this year. And at this point, we, we don't have funding to keep the program going. So if you're willing to contribute to help discover new antibiotics, we're more than happy to accept your donations. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Blaskovich, And thank you to our listeners for tuning into the checkup. Chat soon. Chat soon.